Well, I want to uh, <clears throat> I wanted to begin this morning with a little bit of a uh, visual exercise, and so I'm going to need two volunteers for that. And I know that can instantly make some of us really nervous. I promise it's nothing embarrassing whatsoever, but all right, Jacob's hand up. I need one more volunteer just to come help with this, this exercise. You don't, Ken, all right, here we go. All right, so so what, and have both of you come right up here, I guess. What I'll, what I'll have you do is um, I'm going to have you both close your eyes. And again, nothing embarrassing, I promise. <laughs> I've, I've, everybody heard me say it, so they can hold me to it. Um, so what I'll do is I'm going to have you guys close your You don't have to do it right now yet, Jacob. But I mean, you can if you want to. But um, I'll have you both close your eyes, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, um, one at a time, give you an object to feel with your hands. And with your eyes closed, just make mental notes. And then when you're both done, I'll have you describe what you were feeling. And I promise, again, nothing embarrassing. Well, it's not, it's not, I don't think. Okay, so go ahead and close your eyes. I got it hidden away back here. No peeking. It's on the honor system. So all I want you to do is just, just describe what, what I have in front of you. So it's, it's not that funny, is it? I don't, you're going to make them nervous. I don't. All right, Jacob, in front of you is something. Just take a few seconds here, just... Feel it, make, make notes, keep your eyes shut through all of it. All right. Ken, I got something right in front of you here. Just, just feel it. You, yeah, make notes. That's my hand. That's not part of it. Okay, just making sure. All right. All right, so just keep in mind what you were, what you were feeling. All right, I've hidden it back away. So you can open your eyes now. That, that part's over. So what, 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 what did you have? What, what was it? I probably should do. Here we go. Something kind of soft and like pokey on a stick. Soft and pokey on a stick. All right. What do you got, Ken? Three-quarter inch metal rod, plastic tip with a hole through it. <laughs> That's very detailed. <laughs> That's very detailed. And, and you were both right. This is what, well, I should say this is how... Right, you were both describing, that's true. I, I tried to clean it off pretty good beforehand. So, all right, that's all I needed, guys. Thanks for doing that. So, yeah, I, so, I mean, obviously I was giving them different sides of the, the same duster there. Um, They're both attempting to describe the same duster. But, of course, because they were, they were feeling different parts of it, their, their descriptions uh, differed. You could say their different perspectives of what were in front of them led to that differing description. And, and I feel like, uh, you know, as I was thinking about the topic today, marriage, I thought, you know, I, at least in my mind, this seemed like a good analogy. Maybe, maybe uh, you're not seeing it the same way, but, but when people get into discussions about marriage today, I think those discussions can sometimes become quite heated. The, the, the ways in which our culture attempts to describe marriage often differs from the way in which the church describes marriage. And a lot of times I feel like we're, it's these different perspectives that we're coming from. And so um, what I want to do in our time today is, is take a look at what does the Bible say about marriage? What is the biblical perspective of marriage? And, and rather than starting from a cultural or a historical foundation, let's go back 
to the Bible. Let's see even as we've been doing in this series at the very beginning of the Bible, starting there and seeing how marriage is described from God's viewpoint, um, according to God's purposes. So, so that's what we're doing this morning. Now, now before we do that specifically, I do, wanna, I do want to give just a brief recap of last Sunday's uh, sermon, because the one today really is an extension of, of that one. We, we talked last week about the theme of relationship uh, first seen in Genesis 1 through 3. Um, we looked at how our need and our desire for relationship, uh, it's, um, it, it, it's because we are created in God's image. I mean, that, that's where it comes from. Our God is a triune God who has existed eternally in relationship. So the three persons of the Trinity have eternally been relating with and to one another. So as a result, we too are created in that image to be in relationship. And that's why uh, God said it was not good when Adam uh, was alone without another human on the earth. So we went on to describe what, you know, what does it really mean to be in relationship with another person? And, and at the heart of it, what we said is, is relationship is being known by someone else, being known by someone else. The, the, the depth of our relationship with someone is, is directly proportional to the amount the other person truly knows us and we know them. That, that's what leads to deep relationship. And so then we talked about uh, benefits of that, of being in relationship with others. Talked about uh, uh, providing space for the fruit of the spirit to grow within us that happens in relationship. Talked about um, being accountable to one another in relationship. We talked about carrying one another's burdens through relationship. And, and throughout that sermon, I, I said that, you know, every one of those things can be experienced apart from marriage. Uh, while marriage is a place where those things can be experienced to a great degree and a great depth, they're not confined to marriage. But that being said, God did create this thing called marriage that we're going to see in Genesis chapter two. And, and through his creation of marriage, there's something that he seeks to powerfully communicate about himself. And that's what we're going to focus on today. Um, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we, we talked about death. And, and I said that one of the, uh, well, that death really fundamentally is a separation. Physical death is separation of body and spirit. Spiritual death is separation of us from God. It's separation. Today, we see the opposite of that. Uh, marriage is most fundamentally about unity. It's unity. And, and by seeing the different forms um, or, or the different expressions of unity within marriage, we come to understand more deeply the triune God, how, uh, how he has created us and, and who he is that we worship. We see him through marriage relationships. So, so we're just going to dive right in and kind of look at these different expressions of unity. Um, uh, you know, as you might guess by this point, we're starting in Genesis at the very beginning. And so I'd encourage you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. And remember, Adam was alone. He was without another human on earth. God stated that that was not good. That was not a good situation. But more than just stating the truth, God went on to the does what he does, and he fixed the problem. So if you look with me at Genesis 2, uh, starting in verse 21, 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In that last verse there uh, is really where we see that unity highlighted, this unity within the marriage relationship. A man leaves his father and mother and then holds fast to his wife, becomes one flesh with her. Um, uh, other translations would say is united to his wife, um, or bonds with his wife, or joined with his wife, whatever the wording, the image is clear. A man and woman are to be marked by unity in becoming married together. In, in the passage we read in Mark 10, when, when Jesus was asked about divorce by the Pharisees in that passage, uh, this is where Jesus went. He came back to Genesis chapter 2, and in the face of separation through divorce, Jesus reemphasized the unity of marriage that we see here first in Genesis 2. And, it, and it's not just a, it's not a hypothetical unity. It's not, it's not a metaphorical unity. I mean, it, it is a, a real unity, and the Bible goes on to talk about different ways that this is seen within marriage. So, for example, here we see unity is displayed in part through the physical relationship between a husband and a wife. When they come together physically, there's a literal uniting of themselves to one another. Um, you know, we can, we can rightly say there's something powerful in that act that does not exist in any other physical act. Um, not, not too often, uh, individuals or, or even our culture as a whole tries to take that sexual component and, and move it outside of the marriage relationship. And, and it, it can be rationalized in such a way that it becomes not much different than shaking hands or giving a hug or, or something like that. But the Bible paints a very different picture from that. The Bible presents the sexual component of a marriage relationship as something which unites together a husband and a wife. And this is why in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, Paul can say what he says. And these are his words in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 16. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul is recognizing this uniting that happens, that there's a uniting that is supposed to happen within a sexual relationship. God designed it that way. He wants us to have a glimpse of himself through the unity seen in marriage. And so the question, well, how do we get a unity, how, how do we get a picture of God's unity through the physical relationship of a husband and wife? And, and if we think about John chapter 1, that famous verse that says, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. In the incarnation, there, there, 
where there were previously two separate things, God and mankind, they came together in one, in one being, in the person of Jesus. The divinity and humanity that came together in Jesus came together in the context of a forever covenant. And so, you know, why does God direct us to keep sex within marriage? There's a lot of sociological reasons that we can come up with. But first and foremost, the uniting of a husband and wife within the covenant of marriage is a picture of the uniting of divinity and humanity in Jesus within the new covenant that we talked about a few weeks ago. Now, can you imagine if God treated the incarnation in the same way that sex can be treated outside of marriage? I mean, can we imagine that? I mean, what if the Son of God became human and then 5, 10, 25 years down the road, however long, just decided it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. I mean, can we imagine that? What, what if in facing the same temptations that we face, uh, the same physical hunger that we face, the same limitations that we face, he just decided uh, it's just going to be easier if I separate myself from humanity. This whole, this whole incarnation, becoming human, it's just not all it was cracked up to be. I mean, what if he decided that? And yet too often that, that is what we do. That is what is done with sex. Two people remove it from a binding covenant and then once something goes wrong, well, they just separate themselves and move on from one another. And if, and I know that's in a way oversimplifying it and it can be more complex than that, but, but the, re, the reason that physical relationship is reserved for marriage is that it is meant to serve as a picture of the unity that takes place between divinity and humanity in the person of Jesus. Man and woman being united or, or, or bonding or joined together, whatever phrase we want to use, is a picture of the incarnation. And admittedly, it's not the perfect picture, right? But it does serve to help us understand this unity a bit more, this uniting of divinity with humanity. So we see that in marriage. The, uni the unity within marriage is seen in the physical component. Um, we see it in the relational component as well between husband and wife. And again, this reveals to us more of who God is. Um, uh, again, back in Genesis 2, a few verses prior to what we read this morning, God said it's not good for Adam to be alone. And then upon making that proclamation, all of the animals filed in front of Adam to not just be named, we know he named them then, but, but to discern if there, was, if there was any helper suitable for him. And of course, we know that there wasn't. None of, none of them were human, and none of them were capable of uniting with Adam relationally according to who he was, according to the image in which he had been created. So God created another human being, different from him, but, but in essence and value and, and core makeup, the same as him. Another human being, just like him. And then upon receiving this woman into his life, Adam was able to relationally be united together with her in a way that he couldn't do with any of those other animals that had filed in front of him. And again, within the Trinity, we kind of talked about last week, the Trinity, there's this unity of persons relationally. There's a unity relationally. God, God the Father, we can start scrambling our brains again. God the Father is not God the Son, is not God the Holy Spirit, 
And yet, all three persons of the Trinity are the same in essence and value and core makeup and, and holiness and worthiness and, and any other attribute of God for which we worship him. And, and, and really, taking this a step farther, I, I would say just, you can listen as I read in John chapter 14. These are the words of Jesus as he describes his relationship with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. So this is Jesus talking in John 14. Um, I'll start in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. It can be difficult in that passage to keep straight who's coming and who's going, right? I mean, Jesus is God, and yet he's talking about his relationship with Father and Holy Spirit. And, and so there's obviously a unity of purpose among the Trinity. We see that clearly in that passage. Yet there's also obedience and submission, as, as Jesus talked about doing what the Father has commanded him to do. I mean, again, doesn't, doesn't this scramble our brains when we let that sink in? Jesus, the Son of God, uh, the second person of the Trinity, fully God, only does what the Father commands him. Fully united together, and yet there's submission, and there's obedience there. And man, it, it's, it's this perfect picture of relational unity within the Trinity, yet along with that submission and sacrifice even. And so when we think about that with marriage, right, just as the three persons of the Trinity are united relationally and seek the same purposes together, so it is meant to be within marriage, the marriage relationship. The unity of, of relationship even exists within the, the orderedness seen within marriage. So Paul speaks in Ephesians 5 about husbands being the head of the wife and wives submitting to their husbands. And that, that directive is not given because of a cultural context in which Paul found himself. It has everything to do with the unity seen within the Godhead. And, and Paul makes that connection in 1 Corinthians 11 when, when he writes that the head of Christ is God, the head of man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband. And it comes from that that Trinitarian structure, that relational unity within, within the Trinity. And it can cause us to hesitate just a bit, right, when we hear that. And, and I think there's good reason for that. And, uh, you know, men primarily have, have taken that principle throughout history and have used it to oppress and, and to control and to manipulate women. That there's no question that it, that has been used that way in history. But it's not because the command is broken. It's not because the model is broken. It's, it's because we're broken. I mean, that, that's why it's used that way. 
And, and Paul sought to combat that in Ephesians 5. I mean, that's why he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I mean, there's no room for oppression or manipulation or abuse in that statement. And Paul says, give yourself up for your wives. Love your wives as you love your own bodies, as you love yourselves. I mean, uh, uh, to, ch to nourish and, and cherish their wives. And so, uh, the relational unity between a husband and wife is, is, is meant to point to this incredible relational unity between the, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, and again, just like I said with physical unity, it's not the perfect picture, it's not the complete full picture, but it's a picture. It is meant to give us a glimpse of that relationship within the Trinity. Another place we see this unity between husband and wife is in creation of other humans. Uh, Adam and Eve are commanded by God in Genesis 1, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Uh, you know, I think back when their first son, Cain, was born. I wonder if they were just kind of shocked by that whole thing. I mean, when Eve looked at Cain and said, man, he's got Adam's hair. That's what is that? You know, or Adam looked at Cain and said, his eyes, that's Eve's eyes, right? I mean, did they know that was going to happen when they had their first child, that it was going to be the two of them in this one child? I mean, I, it's kind of interesting to think about. And, and that's to say nothing about the mannerisms and, and, and predispositions that are also passed along from parent to child. Uh, you know, with Caitlin being our firstborn, that's where I see it first and foremost. And, and I, I just remember being floored, not only in the fact that she looks like me in certain ways, but, but she thinks like me and talks like me and, and acts like me the older and older that she grows. And, and part of that is nurturing, right? Part of that's the environment in which she's being raised, but there's no question that it's hardwired into her as well. It's crazy. It's crazy to think about that. But there's this incredible unity that takes place when you think about procreation. And, and we can scientifically talk about genetics and, and all of those things, but we can't lose the awe and the wonder over the fact that each baby born on this earth is a uniting together of two different people. It just is. A child rightly reflects both parents from whom he or she is born. There's a unity in that. And again, we, we can take childbearing and we can remove it from marriage, but that was never intended to be the case. Procreation is meant to be the outflow of, of the physical, of the relational unity seen between a husband and a wife. And again, we think about how that reveals God to us. The creation of mankind is the outflow of the unity between the three persons of the Trinity. You think back to Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image. You hear it. I mean, the creation of mankind is flowing out of the unity of the Trinity. The unity of the Godhead just spills over into mankind, kind of in the same way that a husband and a wife spill over into their children. And again, right, it's not the perfect picture of the Trinity, but it gives us another picture of who God is and how he's working in this world. And then again, finally, just 
one more area of unity that we see between a husband and wife, it, it's their, their work together in raising children. Parenting is, is always meant to be a task for both husband and wife. And I love the, I love the wording in, in uh, Proverbs chapter 6. This is what it says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. So they're both listed there. It says, bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. Uh, both father and mother are seen teaching and guiding the child in that passage, in their parenting. Uh, it's a picture of unity of purpose between husband and wife. Now, in the Bible, God's people are regularly referred to as his children. We see that so many different places. God loves us as a father and mother would. Uh, God disciplines us as a father and mother would. God protects us as a father and mother would. God nurtures us as a father and mother would. And, and, and perhaps most gloriously, the Trinity is seen carrying out this unity of purpose in the salvation of mankind. And I think a great example of this uh, we can see in Ephesians chapter 1. In that passage, we get this picture of, of God the Father choosing us for salvation and raising Jesus from the dead. And we get God the Son redeeming us through his blood and, and forgiving us of sin. And then we get the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus to us and sealing us until we receive our inheritance in eternity. It's, it's each person of the Trinity with this unity of purpose working together in the lives of God's children. And again, likewise, the, this unity between husband and wife is meant to show, to be shown as they, as they work together, this unity of purpose, raising children, seeking the, the good and the thriving of their own children. Again, not a perfect picture, but it's another picture for us when we think about the unity of the Godhead. So, so all that to say this morning, I feel like I've said the words unity and trinity so many times that it's going to start stumbling over them, but there is an incredible unity that exists within the trinity. The trinity itself and, and, and the relationship within the trinity is admittedly difficult for us to grasp. But the marriage relationship is meant to be a human picture of the unity, of, of unity that points to the unity of the, I mean, the word trinity really means tri-unity. Marriage unity is meant to be a picture that points to that. So, so here's what I see as far as application for us. And, and I'll speak to two groups this morning, those currently married and those not currently married. Um, so, so for those currently married, I, I think we have to remember the words of Jesus that we read in Mark 10 this morning. After he responded to the Pharisees by highlighting the unity within marriage, Jesus said to them in Mark 10, what, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And we hear that at weddings primarily, right? We hear that all the time. That's often how a wedding is, is concluded. And we rightly consider that to be a declaration against divorce. I think we're right in that. But I think we wrongly stop there and, and fail to consider the full ramifications of that statement. 
Because unity in marriage is, is about more than simply having a government document that says two people are married. It's about so much more than that, as, as we've been talking about. The physical unity, the, the relational unity, the, the child-bearing unity, the child-rearing unity are things which man should not separate. When it says, let no man separate, that's all of that. And, and the reason the unity in those areas should remain is because it points us to the, the nature and character of our triune God. So to destroy the unity within marriage is to speak falsely about what it points to. It's to speak falsely about God and his character and the unity within him. Now, now that being said, again, this, this is no groundbreaking statement, but we are fallen humans living in a fallen world, aren't we? Not a surprise there. And, and, and I've said more than once this morning that our pictures of unity fall short of the reality within the Godhead. And, and this is both because we are not God, but it's also because we live in a, in a fallen world and because we are fallen. And, and so, so I don't want to pile shame on anybody this morning. Um, Everyone who has ever been married has seen their unity weakened or, or, or broken in some way. All of us. And sometimes it's due to our own personal fallenness. Other times it's, it's just due to the fallenness of the world in which we live. Uh, we live in a fallen world that might preclude some couples from being able to have children and displaying unity in that way. We, you know, it might preclude others from being able to raise their children alongside their spouse and show the unity in that way. We're in a fallen world. But in the midst of that, and we can, we can praise God for his grace upon us, for his mercy upon us. We can praise God for his forgiveness to us and his redemption within us. We can praise God for his restoration for us, even within this broken world, and even though we fall short, we still have to remember the image that we are to reflect. You know, my, if I can speak personally, my marriage is about so much more than simply me and Megan. If that's what it becomes, then I've missed it. It's not about just the two of us. It is meant to reflect God's character and again, I'll be the first to admit we fall short of that. We do not perfectly reflect his character. But even though we fall short of it, we have to remember that God whom we are reflecting, whom we are called to reflect in our marriage. And we ought to seek the strength and the humility and the love from God that is needed in order to carry that out. And for those who, uh, who are not currently married, uh, children, teenagers, those who've never been married, those who are widowed, those who are divorced, uh, our ability to reflect the image of God is not diminished because we are not currently married. If I ever, if I ever assume that God's character is only truly seen through a marriage relationship, then, then my picture of God is way, way, way too small. Being married does, does not 
move a person into a more privileged status with God. It, it does not make a person more holy in God's sight or even more capable of carrying out God's purposes. Uh, um, uh, in, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians uh, 7, he is very clear on that. I mean, he, he urges those who are unmarried to stay that way. He said it's good to not be married as you, as you currently are. So, so those not currently married should continue to bring honor to God by reflecting his image right where you are. Uh, show God's character by how you live your life so that he reveals himself through you to others. And, and then along with that, we can glean from those who are married and, and see the picture of, that God is revealing of himself through that situation, through marriage. And you know, it, it, it ought to be a situation in which married and unmarried are mutually benefiting one another as God reveals himself through each one. So there's not that one is more privileged over the other. Marriage is simply a way that God has chosen to reveal part of himself that way, and he reveals part of himself through other ways as well. So, so I guess the bottom line this morning Again, I feel like I sound like a broken record, but I want to stand on this principle from Scripture is that marriage is a way in which the unity of the Godhead can be seen on earth. It's a blessing. It is meant to be a physical picture right before our eyes of this spiritual reality within the Trinity. And, and when others around us or, or, or the culture at large seek to define marriage according to different standards— we need to stand firm on what the Bible reveals to us. And, and when I say stand firm, I don't mean shouting louder than everybody else, shouting our perspective as loudly as we can and seeking to overpower everyone else. I mean stand firm by living out the reality of what a marriage is meant to be, right? This picture of unity meant to reflect the Trinity, you know, presenting that truth according to what Scripture reveals to us. We have to stand firm on that through, through how we live. Would you stand with me? I want, I want to close by, by giving thanks this morning. When you think about it, what a task God has of revealing himself to us. <laughs> when you think about the grandness of God and him wanting to be known by us, as we talked about last week, how does he do it? Well, one of the ways is through marriage, that he's created this relationship in which a powerful picture can be proclaimed of who he is. So let's give him thanks for that this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and um, again, we give, we give you thanks that you desire to show yourself to us. Were it not for that desire, uh, <laughs> we would be lost. We would have no clue of who you are. And so we praise you for it. We thank you that, that you love us that much, that you want to show yourself to us. And I thank you for this, this uh, one way that you do it that we're talking about this morning. God, help us to, uh, to have a clearer and clearer understanding of, of this unity within marriage and how that points to you. God, we thank you that, uh, that we can see you in that way and we can learn more about you in that way. But as fallen humans, God, I pray for strength for us. I pray for wisdom for us. And 
There's many times we fall short of that, but we pray that for those of us who are married, that you would strengthen us in that, that you would give us give us the wisdom and the love and the, the humility and the sacrifice needed to display you through our marriages. God, and I pray for those of us who are married as well, that we would make sure to recognize that those not married also display your character. I think many times the church can overlook that, and we don't want to forget that this morning, God, that you are much bigger than a marriage could ever proclaim. And so we thank you for that as well. Pray that you would give us, give us wisdom and discernment in our culture to to proclaim this truth, to live this truth, to do it in a humble way, but to do it in a, a firm way as well. God, marriage is meant to be, be one of the ways that, that you bless your people. And so we pray that we would see it that way, that we would treat it that way and receive it that way. We give you praise. God, we thank you that, that your love for us is is so deep and that you pursue us and it's why we sing to you now and give you our praise in your name we pray amen